Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. You're listening to a special podcast we're doing in conjunction with our friends at Princeton University Press. We call it the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. In the podcast, we'll be publishing two interviews with Princeton authors every month. If you're interested in following along, you can subscribe to the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast on the NBN or on your favorite podcast app. The podcast includes not only interviews in the series, but all the interviews we've ever done with Princeton authors, hundreds of them. We hope you enjoy this series, and we hope you visit our friends at Princeton University Press on the web. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm happy today to be hosting one of the episodes on the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And I'm extraordinarily pleased that we have Beth Shapiro with us today. She's written a fascinating book called How to Clone a Mammoth. It was first published by Princeton in 2015, and there's a new edition in 2020, which we'll be talking about. Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. And my first question is simply this. Uh, do you like the Jurassic Park movies? <laughs> what a place to start. <laughs> <laughs> Often a question that I ask. And I even start some of my public talks out exactly with this because what, you know, it's kind of, a, I have to take a couple steps back here. So Michael Crichton in Jurassic Park acknowledged a group at the University of California at Berkeley called the Extinct Species Study Group, which was led by... Um, Alan Wilson, who um, is not with us anymore, unfortunately, but Alan Wilson's group was amazing. And they were doing really amazing things, super cool, new technologies, pushing the edge of what was possible just then. And they, with some collaborators in Germany and the San Diego Zoo, were the very first group to actually get ancient DNA or any DNA out of something that was dead. Um, they actually worked with a little tiny piece of skin from something called a quagga, which is closely related to a zebra. And they got a short fragment of DNA out of this thing that they compared to all the other DNA that was published at the time, which was actually not that much because it was the early 1980s, and figured out that it was a type of zebra. So not exactly shocking the world from a paleontological perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but they could get DNA out of something that was dead was super cool. And um, there was an article, as there was, in the New York Times, the Science Times, interviewed Alan Wilson, and he got to be the very first person in ancient DNA to be asked by a reporter whether it was going to be possible to bring a mammoth back to life. I am not kidding. <laughs> in the New York Times article in 1984. And, <laughs> and that is something right. that none of us have been able to live down. That is by far the most common question that we are ever asked <laughs> by anyone yeah, covering sure. the stuff that we've been doing in the lab and is actually the reason I wrote this book. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I actually, it was a question that was driving right at that, because one of the things you say is that uh, we can't exactly do what is presented in the movies, even though they're fine movies. I like the first one especially. But let's get, to, let's get into the science a little bit. And um, let me ask you this. Uh, people know that animals have been cloned. Dolly was cloned in 1999. Um, what do you need, scientifically speaking, to clone an animal? What sort of material? Uh, well, there's a lot of things that we need, and the, the things are materials and things are technological. Um, but at the core, the most foundational thing that you actually need in order to make cloning the way we know it right now work is a living 
cell. And this is something that we do not have from any mammoth or indeed any species or individual that has been extinct or dead for some time. Now, there are some species that are extinct uh, that before the last individual died, living tissue was taken and put into deep freeze. So it's able to be brought back as living tissue. This is, for example, the Bucardo, which a lot of people have heard of. There was an individual, the last living individual was a female called Celia. And part of her tissue, skin tissue, was taken while she was still alive and put into deep freeze. And later on, that was revived and used in cloning the same way that people close clone Dolly the sheep. And in fact, a Bucardo was born, but it had a, a, a problem with one of its lungs and it died shortly after it was it was born. So that was, I guess, a, a de-extinction, um, although shortly within minutes followed by, I suppose, a, a re-extinction, which is kind of bad. Um, but you know, that is the only way that <laughs> extinct species could be brought back is if there is living tissue that's going to be found. Of course, for a mammoth, you know, mammoths actually lived until relatively recently. It sometimes surprises people when they find out that mammoths were still alive only maybe 3,500 years ago. You know, which is, I mean, it is a long time ago, but it's also not that long ago. People think the Ice Age, 20,000, 40,000 years ago. Um, and yes, there were many more mammoths then, but there were some 3,000 years ago. Still, there is no living mammoth material. There are no living mammoth cells. And so we cannot clone a mammoth. I suppose that's terrible. I shouldn't have started the interview like that. Now nobody's going to buy my book. <laughs> yeah, well, the way you presented it in the book is hilarious. In the, in the, in the preface to the new edition, it's very, very funny. So I recommend people read the book so they can see this very funny introduction in which almost the very first words are, uh, it's been five years now and we still can't clone a mammoth and we never could. So, <laughs> so you need a living cell, a viable cell. So one avenue to cloning an extinct animal would be to create a viable cell. Is that possible at all? Yeah. Well, so this are is- Are people the- trying that? <laughs> probably the technology that everybody's heard of, because at least once a year, probably more often, George Church, who's a, a friend of mine and a scientist at, at Harvard's uh, WIS Institute, he says something about how he's got a little bit more mammoth DNA and one of his living elephant cells, and that means we're going to have mammoths in the next year. This is a little bit disingenuous. Um, we have He has cells, cells, skin cells, from elephants. Asian elephants are the closest living relative of mammoths. Um, Asian elephants and mammoths diverged evolutionarily about five or six million years ago. So there's lots of differences in the DNA code between an Asian elephant and a mammoth, somewhere around a million or a million and a half letter differences. That's the same number of differences that separate us and chimpanzees to give you some idea of the sort of evolutionary divergence between these two. But if you take a living elephant cell, Asian elephant cell, you can use some of these newer biotechnologies like crispr DNA editing. So you can go in and and sort of cut and paste your way from an elephant DNA sequence to a mammoth DNA sequence. Of course, if you're going to do this 100% of the way, you'd have to do one and a half million cut and pastes, which is not possible yet. You know, technological problems here. Maybe someday we'll 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 be able to do this. Um, George and his team have so far made about fifty. Last time I asked him, fifty different edits. So they've changed um, the elephant genome inside those cells that are living in dishes in his lab into a mammoth genome. A little bit, like fifty out of one and a half million changes, um, which is pretty significant. I mean, it's a really cool and significant advance, but 
it is not <laughs> the same thing as as actually having a mammoth cell. There's a lot of differences there. And you know, even if we were able to do that, there's steps after that that we don't know how to do. You know, then we have a cell living in a dish in a lab. But that's not a mammoth, right? <laughs> so <laughs> no, it's not. No, a cell in a lab is not a mammoth. No. So let's continue along this line of investigation. So if you have a, 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 a let me take a step back. So how many, um, how shall I put it, uh, projects aimed at de-extinction are going on today? Are there people working on this in this way? <sighs> No, I, so what I'm talking about, just to, sorry to interrupt, but what I'm talking about is, so this animal didn't die very long ago because animals are basically going extinct all the time. So they actually have one, let's say, a very small set of this notional animal, and they manage to save it, and they extract um, a cell from it or a set of cells from it, and then they attempt to reproduce or clone the animal. Are these kinds well, of things going on? We don't really call that de-extinction because the the lineage itself, the animal itself, whatever you're going to call a species, and this is a confusing scientific thing that sometimes makes sense and sometimes doesn't. Well, um, it's, if it's not extinct, then you can't have a de-extinction. Um, instead, what we, we like to think of this is, uh, is a separate under a separate umbrella term, which we call genetic rescue. The idea that we can use biotechnologies like like gene editing, like translocations, which doesn't involve actually manipulating any DNA, um, like selective breeding programs to be able to re-engineer diversity into populations that have lost diversity because they're struggling to stay alive, because maybe there's a disease that's attacking them and things like that. And there are um, many genetic rescue projects that are going on. I encourage anybody who's interested in this to check out the website of a not-for-profit based near me called Revive and Restore. And they have some incredible details of super cool projects that are going on right now involving things, including the mammoth. They have some details of George's project with mammoth, but also black-footed ferrets, which are um, a little uh, little adorable, very cute, especially when they're babies, um, mammal that um, everybody thought was extinct for some time until one population was rediscovered. And it was immediately put on the endangered species list and captive breeding programs began. And this was great. They make a lot of black-footed ferrets in captivity. But when they are released back into the wild, they eat a prairie dog and they get plague and they die. And this is not good news for black-footed ferrets. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no. So, so these species... Uh, survive in small populations and they're undergoing what is sometimes I think not technically called a bottleneck. So the population is almost too small to survive. A bottleneck just means that there's very few individuals left. And so they end up losing diversity and this can be bad. So when a population goes through a bottleneck, sometimes what will happen is if there's um, a mutation that uh, is bad, um, the Florida panther is a good example here. So the Florida panthers um, were actually a success story, a genetic rescue success story, even though the genetic rescue didn't involve any manipulation of DNA itself. It did involve uh, understanding that if you augment the pool of DNA that's in a population, you can rescue them, you can save them from whatever bad stuff is happening because they've lost their diversity. So Florida panthers got to be a very small population, highly inbred, only a few individuals, and they started to show signs of, of this 
inbreeding. So um, they had kinked tails, a, a, a crooked thing in their tail. Um, many of them didn't have testicles that would descend, so they couldn't reproduce. They were making very few mobile sperm. They had heart defects. They were really susceptible to disease. And what people did was they took panthers from Texas, just the nearest population to Florida panthers, and introduced a few healthy individuals into Florida. And that addition of DNA overwrote those bad signals that were in the DNA from the inbreeding and saved the Florida panthers. The idea here is that we can do this same thing. We can overwrite any maladaptive mutations that are in these populations. But if there isn't another population that we can borrow from, a population in Texas to stick into panther or a population somewhere else to stick into our black-footed ferrets, can we actually go to the past? So instead of going geographically, we go to a place called the Frozen Zoo in San Diego, where before black-footed ferrets nearly went extinct, they captured some few individuals, they took some cells, and they put them in the deep freeze. So now we have these living deep frozen cells from individuals who have different DNA sequences because they were alive before this near extinction event. And can we use those individuals, clone those individuals and introduce them into that population, providing an increase in diversity and giving them a, giving them a chance at surviving? Right, because with these very small populations, cloning is not exactly what you need because that produces a copy. What you need is increased genetic diversity, and that's being done, I guess, yeah. is the right word, artificially? No, I mean, it, <laughs> it is, all of it is both artificial and natural. We can't really step beyond this. Um, you are cloning, but in this case, you're, you're, what you're cloning is you're cloning individuals who used to be alive, where there's frozen cells, and then you're breeding those individuals into the population. So you're increasing the diversity by cloning something that is dead, that's been dead for decades, <laughs> and then and using technology to do that, and then breeding that diversity into the new population, which is pretty cool. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's not gene editing. We're not editing. We're not making any changes in DNA sequences. It is cloning. It's just cloning something that's been dead for a long time, which mm -hmm. is kind of cool. Yeah, it is kind of cool. <laughs> it is kind of cool. So, if I understand correctly, you don't think uh, de extinction as it's described or uh, portrayed in uh, Jurassic Park, is possible. Well, you know, in Jurassic Park, it's a, it's a weird thing. They took frog DNA and they stuck it into other things. I don't know why they picked frogs, which is weird, because even then we knew that birds were the most close living relatives to dinosaurs, not frogs. So why yeah, they yeah. so far away in the evolutionary tree is a little weird, but, you know, whatever. Um, but they were mishmashing things together, you know, filling in holes with different species, which is kind of crazy. Um, the idea of de-extinction, finding something that's been dead for a long time and somehow fixing the broken up tiny little junky pieces of DNA that have been decaying for tens of thousands of years, that's not possible, right? But, you know, what do we mean by de-extinction? What is the goal of de-extinction? Is it really to have a, a, a mammoth that we can look at and hug and maybe, you know, put in a zoo and maybe have like kitty rides on and stuff like that? <laughs> is there That's horrible. What's the motivation? Is there some ecological rationale for wanting to bring them back? I think for some species, you know, recently extinct species whose extinction might have thrown their, their community that they lived in and out of balance, then maybe maybe there is a reason to try to to bring them back, to reestablish ecological connections that that existed prior to their disappearance. But then you have to ask yourself: Do you really need that exact species, or could you use something in its in its place? You know, is there something that's closely related to it that does the same things? 
Or do we maybe need to use a little bit of our technologies here and say, well, there's, you know, we have elephants, right? And let's say we believe we really need mammoths up in the high Arctic. Um, There's a a father-son team um, that have a place up in northeastern Siberia called Pleistocene Park. Um, It's um, Sergei Zimov and his son Nikita Zimov. And they really want mammoths. They want mammoths to be back in Pleistocene Park because they think mammoths play a really critical role in establishing this ecosystem just by wandering around and knocking down shrubs, just like elephants do. You know, they, they have this very pivotal role in maintaining their ecosystem. And Sergei and Nikita say, we need a mammoth here in order to do this. But do they actually need a mammoth or could they use an elephant that maybe has been modified using gene editing technologies to be able to survive, even thrive in the cold habitat up in Siberia? Elephants are tropically adapted. So obviously it wouldn't work just to take an elephant and shove them into Pleistocene Park. That'd be bad for everybody, right? Um, But if we could identify mutations in their DNA that would make them better able to survive in that environment, then maybe we could just create a cold adapted elephant. Um, That is, in fact, what George's team are working to do. They're focusing on genes that are associated with things like metabolism and thick fat and and hairier hairier fur, you know, things that would help it to survive, these animals to survive in the high Arctic, right? Um, So if they were to succeed, maybe they would create a cold adapted elephant. Now, here's here's the question. And I think the answer depends on who you are. Let's say they do create an elephant that's capable of living in Siberia by taking some mammoth genes and cutting out the elephant version in the elephant cell and pasting in its place the mammoth version. So you have an elephant cell, mostly elephant, that has a bit of mammoth DNA in it. Does that count as a de-extinction? I don't know. Um, to me, uh, no, I guess. I mean, it's not really a de-extinction. It's, it's something else. What do you think, Marshall? Is that a de-extinction? Um, I would call it um, I would call it speciation or something like that. You're essentially creating a new species. It's a, it's like the old one, but it's not identical to the old one, and it's like something else, but it's also unlike something else. And it reminds me of the process of speciation, where a new species emerges in a kind of natural way. Yeah, uh, the, here you, the, the, the species has some help, but it's yeah, it's kind of speciation. I have to stop and ask you this question: What do you think of the metaphor? As DNA as the blueprint for life. <laughs> and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek question. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not, yeah, right. Not very good. Yeah, that doesn't really, uh, it's not the right metaphor. So, you know. The challenge with that, and, and it, it, it feeds right back into some of these, some of these issues, is that, um, associated with why we can't, why why I think we can't actually create identical copies of things that are there is that, you know, the idea of, of DNA as a blueprint, blueprint for life assumes that everything that we are is rooted in the A's and C's and G's and T's, which are the four letters that represent the chemicals that make up our DNA code. And we know that that's not true. We're a product, yes, of the DNA that and the, the order of the letters that are there. In fact, a lot of what we look like is really based on that. If you want to know how important the DNA letters are in determining what somebody looks like, um, then just see identical twins, right? <laughs> they look identical, they have the same DNA. But but extend that a little bit and know identical twins as they 
as they get older, as they live different lives and experience different things and different illnesses and different stressors and different joys, and they diverge in the way that they look and the way that they act, right? This is because we are a combination of what is coded by our DNA and the environment in which we live. And the same would be true for any clone. A clone is just an identical twin that happens not to be born at the same time, right? <laughs> You're just born into entirely different environments. And also the prenatal environment is entirely different. So if we clone a mammoth genome by editing, copying, and pasting our way from an elephant genome to a mammoth genome, and then we stick it inside an elephant mom, a maternal host, something we also don't know how to do, technological hurdle, number whatever, um, <laughs> right? Will it be a mammoth or will it be an elephant? You know, we know that the, the, the environment, the prenatal environment is determined by mom's stress hormones, mom's food, mom's DNA, saying when to express different genes and not to express other genes. And mom, in this case, is an elephant, 100% elephant. So what sort of effect is that going to have on your mammoth DNA that's inside that developing fetus? I don't think we know. And then after it's born, it lives with a bunch of elephants and it eats elephant food. Elephants do this weird thing where they feed their babies a bit of their poo. And that's to establish the community of microorganisms that live inside their gut so that they can have the right community to break down what they eat. That would also be an elephant's community of gut microorganisms. And, you know, scientists are only just beginning to understand how important that community of gut microbes is to making us look and act the way that we do. So there are lots of differences that come into creating an individual that have nothing to do with the sequence of the letters in their DNA code. So that's a long way. Yes, yes. Relevant. That was a good answer. Yes. Blueprint. I'm not sure it's a blueprint. I don't know exactly what, I don't know if there's a metaphor for it. It might be sui generis, but let's move on a little bit. And you've discussed this a a tiny amount. Um, You favor the de-extinction of distinct traits, if I'm not incorrect. What what do you mean by that? Uh, By that, I just mean, you know, if, if, if there is a, a, a good ecological reason or evolutionary reason to bring something back, we might not necessarily need to bring the whole organism back, but just some traits that allow an organism to fill whatever niche is at the moment not occupied by something. You also have to remember that you know ecosystems don't suddenly they're not in stasis, right? Uh, everything is constantly in flux. When a species disappears, the ecosystem will change. New species will come in. Other species might go extinct. You know, the, everything everything acts constantly in flux. Everything is changing. And so ju- if something has been extinct for many, many thousands of years, it's not clear to me that it's a great idea to bring it back and shove it into an ecosystem from which it's been absent for a long time. That might, again, destabilize that ecosystem and send it off in some other direction. And, you know, everything, every action that we take or don't take affects the organisms and the communities and the ecosystems that are around us. This is just our role as humans, and we need to embrace that this is our role as humans, right? <laughs> I don't know where I'm going now. Yeah. I'm on a tangent here. No, that's very good. That's very good. No. No, that's very good. But that new animal, the one with the different traits that actually has its roots in uh, another species that is not on the verge of extinction, um, that species would be invasive then. Invasive. And that's a, that's a it's a loaded. Yeah, see, I, yeah, I put that in, I, you can't see me, but it's in square, scare quotes. I... <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Maybe, but we are constantly introducing other species and making them inclusive, and also not even deliberately, but as secondary effects of things that we've done. You know, the climate is changing considerably, and species are expanding outside of their ranges, even without us doing anything like physically picking them up or accidentally putting them on a boat or an airplane. You know, they're they're moving into other other habitats, and if if every time a new species is introduced into a new habitat, perhaps by walking there or by flying there on its own accord. We call it an invasive species. That means that we are taking an action as conservationists to say that, no, we don't like the future way. We like it exactly as it is in December 2020. So why do we pick December 2020? Why do we pick um, pre-European colonization of North America as some perfect time? Why not the peak of the last ice age or the last interglacial right before that? We have to keep in mind when we think about invasive species or other loaded terms that, that consider the appearance of new communities of organisms as necessarily bad things, that everything is constantly changing. By not allowing things to change, we are making a decisive action. By allowing things to change, we are making a decisive action. What we have to do is come up with some some logic by which we think we can manage the planet in a way that is probably best going to satisfy our own needs, because that's what we've been doing for at least the last 100,000 years. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So you talk about two methods for cloning. Cloning is in square, scare quotes, again, uh, an extinct animal. And the first one is backbreeding. Can you describe backbreeding? I found this just fascinating. Backbreeding. So this, I think, was in the book, it was in context of um, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, the uh, the German government at the time, let's just call them Nazis, um, decided <laughs> <laughs> that uh, they wanted to recreate the aurochs, which is the extinct ancestor of our cattle that are wandering around today. But the aurochs was bigger and badder and meaner than the cattle breeds that we have today. And because they were the big, bad, mean Nazis, they wanted to be able to have these guys that they could go fight them with swords and things, you know, maybe with because that's what they wanted. And so they decided they were going to recreate the aurochs by taking the breeds that we had today and looking for ones that had traits that they thought looked like aurochs and then making offspring by breeding those guys together. So they were taking the individuals that we have right now and then breeding them to each other in order to create, go back in time and create some traits that used to exist. Now, this was a a silly idea. They had no idea what aurochs looked like anyway. They were just imagining what was going to happen. And obviously it didn't work. But People are using backbreeding now to to try to do similar things. Um, there's a there's a group in the Netherlands who are interested in backbreeding cattle to get aurochs traits now more reliably understood because we have better idea of what they looked like from the archaeological and paleontological record. Um, but they want to have these not to punch and hunt, but um, to reestablish on um, disused farmland so that they can try to you know get these animals to go roaming around and eating. The grasslands and plains and and maybe bringing back some of the habitat that used to be there on land that's fallow at the moment. And so they are using this approach, backbreeding, just looking at traits and trying to bring traits together that they think are optimal um, to create some target um, offspring. It's really similar to selective breeding, which is the way we've made everything from horses to pigs to dogs, etc., corn and wheat, etc., except it's it's using... um, Trying to, to get something that used to be in the past, that used to exist, to, to, to come back out of the DNA. Mm-hmm. But to really do it, if I understand this correctly, you would need to recreate the selection environment 
in which that species emerged. And so that you had selection on the traits that you wanted. That's a, that's a big job. Yeah, well, and we do everything with artificial selection now too, though, right? So if we can imagine that what we want is something with longer horns, then um, maybe we can do it just by picking individuals that have longer horns and forcing them to breed together rather than creating a habitat that would favor individuals with with longer horns and therefore make them the most likely to breed and produce. So, you know, we create selective environments for everything now. Um, that's you know, <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. And you can see it at the table. We probably eat at every day. Um, so then there's another approach to cloning, again, cloning is in square quotes, and that's genetic uh, engineering or insertion for traits in a living animal. And you've talked a little bit about that. Um, how do you know which traits to uh, include? I know the phenotypic ones are probably obvious. You want hair on your mammoth, but are there other ones that we don't know about? That's a great question. And can we call it technological hurdle number whatever plus one? Because yeah, (laughs) we don't know, you know, the the most we know. And you say those phenotypic traits are probably easy. Great. Yeah. I know that, for example, that I would like my uh, cold adapted elephant to have thick layers of fat under their skin so that they don't get cold. How many genes are associated with that? And what, what, what genes are associated with that? no idea. I would love it for the black-footed ferrets to somehow have natural resistance to plagues. They don't die. So what genes are associated with that? And how do we even know? If we think about what we do know today, um, what we do know today is about humans, because we've sequenced and studied a lot of humans, about mice and fruit flies and Arabidopsis plants, because those are model organisms. Oh, and and C. elegans. Don't want to make the worm people mad because that happened. Did you see how the C. elegans war happened on Twitter a few months ago? And it nearly caused a just meltdown. Don't want to make the worm people mad, so they are just as important as fruit flies. Which is not at all figuring out what traits make mammoths fatter. (laughs) But the things that we do know that link genotype to phenotype or physical traits are few and far between. So we're really guessing. If we really want to be able to use genetic rescue or any form of de-extinction of traits as a form of conservation, we need much more detailed information about non-model organisms, about endangered species. And this is a problem. We don't want to go, if a species is endangered, we don't want to go out and like grab bits of tissue from all of them. Right? Like, right. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> so, yeah, leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a conundrum for, for conservation. Nonetheless, I do think that it's super promising, uh, an approach. I mean, um, think about, uh, well, I guess one of the greatest success stories right now is the American chestnut tree story. Do you know this story? No, I don't. Please tell it to our listeners and me. <laughs> so American chestnut trees were once the most abundant tree on the East Coast. They, there were millions of individuals that lived across the East Coast. They're most famous, I guess, in association with passenger pigeons, although passenger pigeons went extinct before the American chestnut trees did, and for different reasons. American chestnut trees became extinct almost suddenly because a fungus, a blight caused by a fungus, was introduced from Japan or China. Um, and into probably uh, botanical gardens in New York, and then it started to spread. And within you know just a few years, all of the millions of American chestnut trees were dead. 
all of them. Um, but they're not entirely dead. So what happens is they the roots continue to live because the fungus doesn't get to the roots. And every now and then they shoot up these little shoots and the shoots can survive for a little bit, but then the fungus gets in there and it causes a canker that, ca- that causes the shoot to die and it never gets to reproductive age. And so the, the trees die. But there are lots of plants that actually have um, DNA sequences that allow them to coexist with this fungus by um, breaking down the acidity, neutralizing the acidity that causes the fungus to actually kill the plant. And so there's a team of people um, led by William Powell from SUNY um, who went about trying to figure out what it was that was caused that that could stop these chestnut trees from being able to from dying from the blight and then they found a gene the gene that they pick is from wheat um, but wheat is just one of the many plants that has an innate way to, to fight this fungal disease and they inserted it into genomes of the American chestnut tree and now there exists because of genetic rescue because of inserting DNA from a different species into American chestnut trees a blight tolerant American chestnut variety that is currently jumping through the hoops of getting approved to be able to be planted in forests across the eastern part of North America. And it is an amazing success story of bringing this tree that was, a, is, is, was, and could again be a foundational tree in these forests back by manipulating its DNA just a little bit. Uh, this gets, it's a, I, I'm hesitant to ask this question because it's a long tangent, but this does get us back into the question of what constitutes a species and speciation and what doesn't. Is that chestnut tree really an American chestnut tree or is it something else? I think it's an I mean, American chestnut tree. This is a tough question. Tree. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think it's an American chestnut tree. It has a, a gene that we have inserted into it that comes from something else, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's 0. 0.00. No, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's a, it's a tax, it's a taxonomical question. Yeah. This is an interesting idea. You know, I, I mean, we as humans have a, a, a proclivity to want to categorize stuff because it makes it easier to talk about them. But how is a species actually formed? What is the process of speciation? Does Do two organisms wake up one morning and think, oh, you know what? <laughs> I can no longer bring you. I am a different species. So that's, I mean, yeah. that's not at all how it works. And, and we know that species barriers, barriers are permeable. I mean, some of the very first ancient DNA genomics work, um, which was done by, led by Swanti Pabo's group at the Max Planck, showed that, you know, Neanderthals and humans interbred way after we diverged. People are happy calling us different species. And yet we know that we pass genes back and forth and that those genes have actually been important. I mean, there are human populations, for example, the population of people that lives in high altitude Tibet have a gene that is inherited, introgressed, that is derived from admixture with Denisovan people that live there that allow them to be able to breathe and use oxygen better when they're up there. That isn't a, a human-moved gene from one lineage to another. It's, we didn't deliberately do it. Um, it just happened by normal processes of evolution. Um, we like to think of evolution and a tree as this perfectly bifurcating thing, but it is not that. It's not that at all. Species will interbreed and exchange genes as long as they can. Sometimes genes are moved back and forth between lineages by viruses or by microbes. They don't even have to be closely related lineages. Um, Just because we are doing it with our technology, you know, that makes us feel a little bit more nervous about it. Maybe we're a little bit more reticent to accept it, but it's not necessarily unnatural. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I think we should leave the question of what constitutes a species to uh, the philosophers or something, because it is a very, uh, yeah, it's a very tricky question and not really a very meaningful one, I think, on the ground. But in any event, uh, probably- when, we, when we start having discussions about these technologies and what we can do with them and what we should do with them, this is a this is a question both of technology and of ethics and understanding and having this discussion about what constitutes a species, what is us going too far, what are we most comfortable with, what is possible to be natural. And now I'm going to use scare quotes for natural because this is the, the way we think about it natural and wildness is all very confusing given what we're learning from genomics about evolution and what we're capable of doing now with our technologies. Um, but that is a subject for a different discussion, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, and this is a nice segue to my last question. What's my, not quite, it's my penultimate question. And I have written down in my notes, should we do this? But I think we've established that we probably should. The more interesting question I think is, how do we pick species for de-extincting or yeah however we're going to term it. What, how do we, we have limited resources and we need to make a decision that's defensible to other people. How do we, how do we choose them? Yeah. You know, this is, this is a, a great question and one that doesn't really have an answer. Um, I think people will give you different ideas depending on what they're interested in. There's not, you know, people imagine that there are billionaires throwing money at this idea or potentially like government organizations throwing money at this idea. And that's, that's not really true. I mean, there are people who are excited about the technology and we appreciate that people are excited and able to do this. But often this is excitement is because they, this is an opportunity to be able to to save species that are alive now from becoming extinct. There's some excitement in maybe bringing something back. But if you think deeply about it and, and really try to imagine the effort that's going into it, and then not just bringing something back, but then what? Releasing it, creating sustainable populations, making sure that they're physically and psychologically well. You know, this is, this is a big open question and something much easier to imagine in the short term doing to save species as a form of conservation, biodiversity conservation, using technology. And I think this is where the real benefit is going to come from investment. It's exactly the same technologies. It's just applied to species that are struggling today rather than species that are already gone. And I think really this is this is this is where we where we are focusing and where we should be focusing. Yeah, it is a, it's a fascinating question, and I'm sure that uh, the people that work in the field have thought about it a lot. Uh, I, I had never thought about it at all until I read your book, but it, it is it, it is something to ponder. Um, well, thank you very much for all of that. Let me ask what is the traditional final question on the New Books Network? And that is, <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit because <laughs> I, I can anticipate the answer. What are you working on now? And you can't answer everything. <laughs> well, actually a new book. I have a new book coming out um, in the fall next year. Um, and it is called Life As We Made It. Uh, so this is all about how humans have been messing with things for as long as we've existed for a long time. And really dives into some of these questions that you're bringing up at the end here about, you know, what does it mean to be a new species? What does it mean to be manipulating things? I do talk a lot about the past, about what we learn from ancient DNA about how we got where we are, about, um, you know, driving things to extinction and domestication and, and conservation, which people like to think of as leaving stuff alone. But, it, but it's in fact like making every decision about who gets to survive and reproduce. So it is the opposite of leaving things alone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To the present and then about new technologies and where we might go from here. So it's a it's a fun book. It was a fun book to write. I am in the, the throes of, of doing the final touches on this. So I'm very excited about that new project at the moment. That's really terrific. You'll have to come back on. Also, I want to say, uh, I, these 
questions about how we impact other species have really been on my mind recently because I have started to feed blue jays peanuts out my back door. And these blue jays, they're corvids, they're very smart, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing a kind of hard selection on the blue jay population in my neighborhood. Because well, the blue jays that get the peanuts. I actually think that, that the, the jays, because you know, Corbins are very smart, they might be doing hard selection on you. I hadn't thought of it, but you're totally right. I will I will prosper and have more children because I was nice to the Jays. Well, yeah, that's entirely have possible. What about leaving your house without peanuts and how dangerous that might be for you? I mean Yeah. I, yeah, right. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of implications, but you make a very clever and good point. I had not thought about that. Um, anyway, uh, let, let, me, let me thank you very much for being on the show today. We've been talking to Beth Shapiro about her wonderful book, How to Clone a Mammoth. It was first published by Princeton University Press in 2015, and it's out in a new edition with a new introduction or preface in 2020. I encourage you to go out and get it. Um, and this is the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, and I'm Marshall Poe. Beth, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been fun.